Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, oh, yes, did, <laughs> for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God is called, that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I may lay, I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of, of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Cadence, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? 
Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Natalie. Good morning. Oh man, it's good to see good to hear all of you and a little bit strange. Um, welcome again to our first in-person worship service in over a year. I think March 15th was, of 2020 was our first uh, online worship service, so it's, it's definitely been a while. And welcome again to those of you who are joining us at home or wherever you might be. I have to say, you know, being back here, it's a little bit strange for me to, uh, you know, preach in front of a live crowd, a live congregation. Um, you know, now there's people here, now they can actually tell if my, you know, my pants match my top, if I'm actually wearing pants, you know, it, there's no redo button now, uh, you know, I was talking to Minister Cola, and you know, every time we mess up, or if there's a blooper, we can always hit record, but, you know, look, I only have one shot, one opportunity, anyways, this is exciting for us as a church, so um, before we turn to our passage this morning, let's, let's actually pray. Let me lead us in prayer. Sovereign God, we thank you for protecting our church and for blessing us. We thank you for the many coworkers who put in all the time and effort week in and week out so that we could worship together safely, whether that is in person or online. We ask, God, that as we continue hearing from you through Acts, that you would remind us of what you have called us to be as the church, your church. Incline our hearts toward you that we might have a deeper joy and a desire to make your name known. For you are our hope in times of distress. You are our strength in times of weakness. You are our joy in times of sorrow. So speak to us this morning and move in us in our hearts as we come and worship you together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Since the end of January, we've been working our way and preaching through the first 12 chapters of Acts. We've seen the, the church, the early church formed. We've seen the early church persecuted. And now as we begin to move into chapter 8 and beyond, we're starting to see the church expand, to grow. We caught a glimpse of that last week when we kind of skipped ahead a little bit and Pastor Jeff Arthurs preached on Acts chapter 9. Uh, with Saul's conversion. This morning, uh, we're actually going to be reintroduced to a person named Philip. And I say reintroduced because this is not the first time that we've encountered him. So if you have your few Bibles, if you're watching at home, you can flip to Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And, and there we encounter a time when the early church was facing a, a serious problem that 
threatened to divide the church. You had uh, Hellenistic Jewish Christians that were rising up against the Hebrew Jewish Christians because their widows weren't being taken care of. They were being neglected. And now you have these two similar but kind of different groups. One spoke Greek and accepted parts of Greek culture that didn't uh, compromise their religious convictions. And you had a, a little bit more conservative group who spoke Aramaic. And so the apostles choose seven men to help uh, work through this issue as the church. And so in Acts 6.5 it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So we already preached on Stephen to, uh, like two weeks ago. And, and now the second name in this list is, is Philip. If we go to the end of the book of Acts, we'll read a little bit more about him there. Acts 21.8. It says there, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So, so far we, we know that Philip lives in Caesarea, this major city on the Mediterranean coast. Philip is called the Evangelist. And I think we're going to see a, a little bit of, of why that is today. Saul had been persecuting the church, and the early church of the believers in Jerusalem started to, to scatter. They were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But there is hope. Verse 4, the church is scattered, but the gospel is spread. And in our passage this morning, you know, Philip is, I think, going to earn that title of the evangelist. We'll see that you know, who ends up, because of the Holy Spirit, who ends up hearing and believing in the gospel which Philip proclaims? And we see two, two groups or individuals. We, we see the Samaritans, a hostile and, and hated group, and the Ethiopian eunuch, an outsider who seeks understanding. And I think as we look at this passage, God is doing something through the events unfolding in our story today. He is making a statement about his plan of salvation and who it will go to. So if you kind of take a look at this map, there's this orange line, if you can see. Uh, it shows the, the route that Philip takes as he brings the gospel to Samaria. It's the same route that Peter and John later, they're going to take as they go down to Samaria to check out what's happening with this group of people. They hear that they've been receiving the word and, and believing in Jesus. Now we say down, because even though on the map it, uh, it looks like they're going up to Samaria, uh, in reference to Jerusalem and the, the higher elevation, everything is, everything is down. Now, after Philip goes to Samaria, we, we read about this angel of the Lord who tells him to go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So now you can see that green dotted line that Philip takes. And on the way, he encounters a, a, a different person, an uh, Ethiopian uh, a eunuch, he, he shares the gospel with him. The, Ethiop the Ethiopian eunuch believes, he's baptized, uh, and uh, then the Holy Spirit miraculously uh, whisks Philip away. And then Philip ends up at uh, this modern city, Ashdod, or, or Azotus. And so you can see that kind of break in the lines, that's where, you know, Philip gets carried away by the Holy Spirit. 
Then our passage ends with Philip going along that light blue line, preaching the gospel to all the towns he passed through until he came to Caesarea, his home that we read about earlier. If you look at this map, you can see how much ground is covered by just this one guy, Philip the Evangelist. But I think the the focus of today's passage Luke's intent as the author and God speaking through that is not simply to focus on the ground covered, but on the people reached. Two weeks ago, we said the the church suffers and scatters, but the gospel still spreads. And this morning, as we see the early church expand, uh, we're going to get a picture of who the gospel is spreading to. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is not for any one people, but for all people. And God, I think in our passage, uses these two encounters of Philip with Philip to really drive home this point. You see, the the Samaritans, on the one hand, they're a hostile and hated group by the Jewish people. Geographically, they lived between Jerusalem and Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. But they were also ethnically different. They were more or less half Jewish, and they had different beliefs about where to worship God. The Jewish people and the Samaritans, they didn't get along really well. They had a contentious history. And even in in parts of the gospel accounts, we we get a sense that these Jewish-Samaritan relations aren't that great. They didn't really like each other. And so in in Luke's gospel, one of the Samaritan villages, they, uh, they end up not receiving Jesus. They don't show any hospitality. And Luke writes, And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That escalated pretty quickly. Thank Jesus that Jesus rebuked them and and said no. And later on, Philip encounters this Ethiopian. And this kind of already tells us a lot about this person that ends up hearing and believing the gospel. You see, he's, he's not a Jewish person from Jerusalem. He's an Ethiopian. He's different. Uh, it's a different Ethiopia than our Ethiopia today, but it's still in Africa. And, and basically, what, what is going on here is, is Philip is reaching and, and speaking to this black African who is hearing the gospel, encountering the gospel, hearing it, and believing it, and rejoicing in it. A black African who is completely different in in, in so many different ways from Philip. Yet, they both walk away believing in the same God, rejoicing in the same gospel. Now, Luke doesn't just say he's an Ethiopian. He's a a eunuch. That is, he's he's a male who's been castrated. And a lot of eunuchs were, were slaves. So they were stigmatized because they're castrated, they're ridiculed as slaves, uh, even if they could attain certain higher positions like, uh, like this man here uh, as a court official of the queen. So in our passage, we get these two profiles of conversion. First, you have a hostile and hated group the Samaritans, and now you have a guy that is geographically, ethnically, socially, and even somewhat sexually different from Philip, the evangelist. And the gospel is for all of them. 
It is not just for Israel. It is not just for one nation, one people, one people group. The gospel is for all nations, all people. And our passage makes that clear. I think it was God's plan for the Samaritans to believe. It was God's plan for salvation to extend beyond Jerusalem and Judea to the rest of the world. I mean, Jesus already kind of told his disciples this in Acts 1-8, but if telling them didn't make it clear, then I think today's passage does. The first section, verses 4 to 25, it has what scholars call, we call this an inclusio, or, or bookends. It might be an easier way uh, to remember it. Or it, it, two things that, that sandwiches this entire uh, uh, literary unit. And it's the, this bookend of the gospel being preached to the Samaritans. Philip brings the gospel to Samaria at the beginning of the passage, and then at the end of this section, uh, Peter and John return to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of of the Samaritans along the way. In both sections, verses 4 to uh, 25 and 26 to 40, they end with this emphasis on the continuation of the preaching of the gospel. So we had verse 25, and this is verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We saw that that was where he lived, right, Uh, from the verse we read earlier. The, The point here is that the gospel is going forward. The people are scattering, but the gospel is spreading. And in the middle of the account of the Samaritans, we're introduced to this magician named Simon. Why, though? What what purpose does he serve? Simon highlights, I think, the power of the gospel to change the Samaritans. He is showing what God in his infinite wisdom and providence is doing among this particular people group. The Samaritans. So look, verse 10 and 11. They all paid attention to him, that Simon, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he, um, he had amazed them with his magic. But now Philip comes and he's proclaiming Christ. He's sharing the gospel and he's doing signs and wonders that affirm and confirm his message. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention now to what was being said by Philip. Same word there, paid attention, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Verse 9 and 11, Simon amazes the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. But guess what happens? Simon himself now He's the one who ends up being amazed by Philip. And so there's something going on here when you read this passage and you have this entire group. This entire group of people change allegiances, change devotion, including the person that was originally the focus of it all. God is changing the Samaritans, and they are coming to faith. Now, what's interesting, if we're to read this passage, is that the Samaritans, they don't actually receive the Holy Spirit immediately. In Acts, generally, 
the believers believe, they're baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That tends to be the pattern. And faith always comes first. But here with the Samaritans, there's a, there's a delay. Now, I, I think as we read this passage, we have to be careful about, you know, assuming that there's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, or, or maybe even for some of us worrying and questioning whether or not we have the Holy Spirit. Whether or not, oh, maybe the Holy Spirit was delayed for us. Rest assured. We do have the Holy Spirit. That is a promise from Jesus, and every promise from him is yes and amen. But I, I think there's an exception here, a, a point being made here from a salvation historical perspective. You see, with the delay of the Holy Spirit, what happens? Peter and John, the leaders and apostles of the, the church in Jerusalem, they come down, or they, they uh, to Samaria. They come and they pray that they receive the Holy Spirit and the Samaritans do. That probably means if they were able to tell that, if they were able to tell that they have the Holy Spirit, that, you know, that there's something visible, something that is showing that, uh, that they have the Spirit. Maybe it was uh, more rejoicing, maybe it was more character transformation, or maybe it was something like the gift of speaking in tongues, like the other times in Acts. Either way, this interaction, I think it does a few things for us, given the whole context when we think about Jewish and Samaritan history. Well, one, it, it teaches the Samaritan believers that they need the mother church in Jerusalem. And it demonstrates to the Jewish believers that God has made it so that these Samaritans have the same legitimate salvation and faith in Jesus that they themselves had received. Jesus was kind of already building up to this in his ministry, which we read about in the Gospels. You think about the parables he told, uh, or the people he encountered. It all kind of pointed, was building up towards the idea that the Gospel would go forth. It would not be just for the Jewish people. It would be for people like you and me. We had the parable of the ten lepers, where I think one of the lepers, was, the leper who came back was a Samaritan. You had uh, the parable of the good Samaritan, where the guy who actually goes and bees a neighbor is the Samaritan. Then you had Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman. The gospel is not just for one nation, one people. The gospel is for the Samaritans. The gospel is for the Ethiopian eunuch. And the gospel is for you and me. This was part of God's plan. I mean, when we continue on in this next section, it's pretty clear it's part of God's plan. When you have an angel of the Lord, he tells Philip to go in this direction, to go and take this road. And along the way, the Spirit tells Philip to join this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch who's riding this chariot. You have this guy who's returning from Jerusalem. He's riding in his chariot. He's, he just came back from worshiping, so it probably means he's some sort of God-fearer or some sort of Jewish proselyte, and he's in his chariot reading this scroll from the book of Isaiah. And Philip comes over running to him as the, the chariot uh, is riding along, and you can imagine him. He's riding along. He says, hey, you know, I can uh, see that you're uh, reading Isaiah, you know, good choice. Do you understand what you're, you're reading? 
And the, uh, the eunuch replies with the most relatable of responses. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to join him so he can stop running. And it turns out this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading from, particularly from, specifically from Isaiah 53, 7 to 8. It says uh, in Acts, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so this guy asks, is, you know, is Isaiah, is he talking about himself or, or something, someone else? And, and Philip, beginning with this specific scripture passage, begins to share about Jesus, begins to share the gospel. Now, when you think about the context of this Isaiah passage, it's so interesting for what God is doing, for how God in his providence, in his timing, has lined everything up. For Philip to use, uh, to come across a guy who's reading about this passage, to share the gospel using this passage with this Ethiopian eunuch. You see, as a, as a eunuch, he, uh, even though he worshipped in Jerusalem, even though he was reading the book of Isaiah, he was still an outsider. He was shut out of the temple according to the, the law in Deuteronomy. Or at the very least, he could only go to the outer court that everyone else could also go to. But now, he's reading this passage in Isaiah, which talks about the suffering servant. And you can imagine he's going to continue on. Maybe he's already read it before. He's rereading it again. If you continue on, the next chapter talks about a new covenant. Then the chapter after that, chapter 55, talks about a new creation. And then we reach chapter 56. And we read of God's promise to outsiders. Specifically, foreigners and eunuchs. I'm going to read a larger portion here just so that we can really see the impact of what's going on here. Isaiah 56, 3 to 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument in a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast by covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So this Ethiopian eunuch reads Isaiah and there's this promise to eunuchs, to a person like him, of being included in the people of God, 
And then there's this vision of a suffering servant who will atone for the sins of God's people, who will make all that happen. And Philip comes along and says, that man is Jesus. Hope has a name. Salvation has a name. And his name is Jesus. And in these two accounts, we see the kingdom take a huge step forward to to the nations. We see large groups of people who were otherwise hostile and hated, and they are now rejoicing in Jesus. We see individuals come to faith like this Ethiopian eunuch who was stigmatized, ostracized, and different from Philip in so many different ways. But none of that kept him from being a child of God. They heard the gospel. They repented. They believed. The gospel is not for any one people, but for all people. This was the message that that God spoke through Luke to the original readers. It's the same message for us today. Paul writes in Galatians that because of Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that, that God is all of a sudden getting rid of ethnic socioeconomic, and even gender distinctions. But he is saying that none of these can disqualify you from being united to Christ. None of these things can keep you from the love of Christ. I mean, yeah, Christianity sometimes, it has a reputation that is it's pretty exclusive, right? I mean, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, He's he's not saying, you know, this is my truth. He's saying, I am the truth. That means believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and following Jesus. That's about as exclusive as it gets. But I would contend from our passage that God's plan of salvation is also pretty inclusive. And that is good news. Tim Keller, he, he talks about this inclusive exclusivity. He writes there, I, 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 point, I, I point out that the universal religion of, the human, of humankind is we develop a good record and give it to God, and then he owes us. The gospel is God develops a good record and gives it to us, and then we owe him. In short, to say a good person, not just Christians, can find God is to say good works are enough to find God. But this apparently inclusive approach is really quite exclusive. It says the good people can find God and the bad people do not. What does this mean for those of us with moral failures? We are excluded. So both approaches are exclusive. But he contends the Gospels is the more inclusive exclusivity. It says joyfully, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been at the gates of hell. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. And in today's passage, we see it doesn't matter if you were part of a hostile and hated group. It doesn't matter if you're not part of a particular nation. The gospel is for you. And that is good news. 
Pew Research, they did a study uh, a few years ago that examined where the majority of, re- of religion's followers lived. It was interesting because the geographical center of a lot of these major world religions remained close to where it originated. Many of these religions were heavily concentrated in one or two countries. But with Christianity, 11 countries are home to 50% of all Christians. The study reports that, that Christians are the group whose distribution is most closely proportionate to the global population pattern. The gospel is for the nations. This is the point that Luke makes as the narrative unfolds in Acts. That the gospel does not solely belong to Israel. The gospel does not only belong to America or to China or to Africa. The gospel is not for any one people, but for all people. May we as a church live that out. Let's pray. God, we give thanks for your good news. We give thanks for just being amazed at how marvelous you are and at how you are working in and through fallen people to carry out your plan of salvation. We pray for our own church, for our own congregation, for Crossbridge and for CBCGB, that we might make your name known and further your kingdom to the end of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.